Welcome to Lore Citizen, a podcast dedicated to all things Star Citizen lore. If you enjoy this, make sure that you like, subscribe, and follow all of our social medias. Without further ado, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another, uh, well, it's already going to say in the intro, but you know, uh, Lore Citizen, uh, another lore discussion podcast. Um, we, we took a little break with, with Fist and Jala last time. Now we're back with uh, Jail and Algrid. So I'll let them introduce themselves and we'll kind of undergo the the the, uh, the theme. Uh, Jail, who are you? What do you do in Star Citizen and where can they find you? I'm Jail. I am a little bit of a lapsed creator this month. I haven't really put anything out in a while, but I got you some stuff both. that I'm going to show, be showing people soon. Um, but yeah, I... Uh, I mostly do stuff about like xenolinguistics and maps and things that interest me like that. Awesome. And you can find um, my YouTube channel. Yeah. And which is youtube.com just slash jail or is it? Uh, yeah, my account name is jail and hopefully it'll be linked in the description. There will be a link in the description. Yes. So that we can watch it there. Um, Al, who are you? What do you do in Star Citizen? And where can they find you? Old man Al. Um, now, Garibou Mont is the, uh, the character name, and I am a, I suppose, a ship collector is probably the, the best way to describe me. Um, and I am part of one of the info runners, and probably we're best known for our fixed my fleet, where people who are trying to get the best value of ships and the most gameplay loops of the things they want, say, hey guys, can you help us? And then we, we spend several hours looking at their fleet and looking at what they want and then looking at the options and helping them uh, i suppose consolidate awesome to get the best value so yeah uh, info runners youtube.com slash the info runners for those who are interested and of course all these links will be down below in the description um we last time we we all all three of us spoke we talked about the first contacts of uh, the various species. We talked about the Devarin, we talked about the Xi'an, we talked about the Vanu. Um, the we, the reason why we didn't talk about the Vanduul is because the Vanduul are an entire episode, like straight up an entire episode. Their 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 whole conflict is is a long or their whole their contact is conflict, and that conflict is a long complicated history. So we, we didn't want to go over all of that. But we did want to talk a little bit about the aftermath of the First and Second Tavarian Wars, specifically the Xi'an Cold War. And this is going to be a two-part series in and of itself because of how complicated it is, um, which is always confusing when, I, when I'm told that Star Citizen doesn't have any lore. It's, it's whenever it's like, whenever I hear that the, the, there's, there's nothing there. It's like, man, I... I it's I, I, history. I, I, I can't even fill up, like, this. it's 13 hours at least for basics. Not even the details and the interesting stuff that they've spent seven years, eight years writing. <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, always find it amazing as well, the, the, the whole argument that we don't have a history or there's no, there's no thing to get our teeth sunk into. And it's just, it's just depth upon depth upon depth and layer upon layer upon layer. Yeah, and and we were talking about this earlier about how it's written. It's important to understand that like most of the way that this is written isn't, you know, textbook. This happened. This happened. This happened. This is canon. It's more as if it was written in universe. So a lot of this information is written with a bias implied or implicit in it. Um, and so and, it, and it's it, not that they don't have that canon and law set somewhere. No. Down. All they're doing is they just keep sprinkling those breadcrumbs out for us. Don't, don't they? It really makes it 
as a historian, I find that really interesting because it gives you stuff to, uh, to dig around and, and search for and, and develop hypotheses and theories. And it gives us stuff to, 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 to talk about, which is interesting. So, uh, keep that in mind when we're talking about this stuff, hopefully you're enjoying this so far, please do continue to watch, subscribe, um, follow along on our, the, the, the audio podcast format. Um, but. As I said, we're going to be talking about the Xi'an Cold War. And talking about the human Xi'an Cold War, you have to start with the biggest part of the Xi'an Cold War, which was the Perry Line. So we'll start with Jail. Jail, why don't you give us a little bit of background on the Perry Line? Thanks very much. So yeah, in that previous episode, we did cover the start of the Cold War in some detail. Um, and I do recommend checking out that episode to understand how we're kick-starting all of this, but it's kind of intertwined with the formation of the Perry Line. I'm just going to give you the briefest outline of what we were discussing there and then how this then fits in. So um, we met the Xi'an in 2530 when a terraforming company bumbled into a Xi'an system. Whole team was captured, took two weeks to negotiate their release, and the cost of that release was giving up detailed information about the human expanse, which was the UPE at the time. Um, we, there was tensions rising because in 2541, that's 11 years later, we discovered the Tavarin, started the first Tavarin war. And then, there, so you've got this paranoia of the time, Ivan Messer comes along, he's a war hero, he has some of his mates um, bomb various cities across the UEE, blame it on the Xi'an, he becomes um, Imperator in 2546. So that's where we end up, where we're deep in a Cold War. But in the middle of that, we glossed over 2542, the formation of the Perry Line, and we're going to explore that in the, some detail. And to understand the motivations for its formation, we need to discuss a few discoveries that actually came just after that first contact in this period when the Cold War is, Cold War is starting. I'm also going to be saying a lot of dates and a lot of uh, system names, and um, I might make some graphic that will help. Um, if not, I've made this uh, star map where you can actually like slide through and see when these systems get discovered and get that in a bit of more context. They'll probably be up on the so, screen right now. Following the first contact negotiations in 2530, the UPE had agreed to retreat from the undeveloped system that the Xi'an called the Sung, and humanity would come to call Palace. Forces gathered in the Baker system to keep a watchful eye on the jump point. And then a year later, another jump point was discovered in the same system, this time to a system that the Xi'an called Yamon. Yamon. <laughs> the nav jumper responsible, Tisa Morrison, Soon ran into a military, uh, Xi'an military mining escort and tried to avoid revealing the location back to human space. Uh, she she was a good good scout. She reported the discovery immediately, and soon after, the military just surround this jump point. But also, fortunately, so did press and other members of the public, waiting to see if the Xi'an actually saw her come back. And a couple of weeks later, a Xi'an scout pops out, and very fortunately, there was lots of press there because the the there were a lot of itchy trigger fingers that right then. And um, the Xi'an scout sort of popped out, saw the human fleet, went back, no shots were fired. Uh, but fortunately, we narrowly dodged a hot war starting there and then. So there's not a lot much information about what happened over the next decade, but it seemed likely that there would have been some pretty significant military presence in Baker, because that's where both of these systems connected into. And that's our only portal that we knew of to the South Xi'an at the time. Uh, the system to this day has no habitable worlds, and that's maybe why we don't know so much about this period, because there probably weren't that many civilians around. 
and it was a sort of a remote outpost with the Navy guarding this back door. But what we do know is that bold corporations began exploring Yamon, as it turned out, it was a relatively new, new discovery for the Xi'an as well. And the Navy had no real basis to actually stop people from going past. Um, and the next chapter of human Xi'an relations would then center on systems a few jumps away, uh, off Castor and Kiel, that kind of area of space. The complications that the Xi'an presented to future exploration had led the UPE to found the Government Cartography Agency in the hope that military nav jumpers trained in diplomatic protocols would be able to avoid the disastrous events of Xi'an first contact. It was against this backdrop that in 2539, one Dehunsil Kosoko stepped out of hospital on Prime having recovered from the loss of a leg in a ship crash, bought a brand new ship, and then got straight back to work as an explorer. And three weeks later, he struck the gold he'd been looking for his entire career and found a new jump point in what was then called the Nivellin system, now known as Hadrian. He found a scientific wonder, a proto-system rife with research possibilities. He reported his findings to the UPE and the newly formed GCA got to work surveying the new discovery, at the time called the Adara system, after his grandmother. Uh, that's uh, de Hunsel's grandmother. A couple of jumps away, another new system was slowly going through the initial stages of colonial exploration. Horus had been registered with the UP in 2528, two years before Xi'an first contact. I say registered because the discoverer, Mary Sante, had spent many years charting the system in secret before reporting her findings. Indeed, legends say that she may have found it at the age of 14 while running away from home in a stolen ship. After the discovery was reported to the wider UPE, Sante continued to explore the system she had spent so much of her life in as other hardy prospectors moved in to seek their fortunes. So this brings us up to 2542, two major discoveries. The precise order of events isn't 100% clear, but it appears that first, Mary Sante, pushing ever further out in her beloved horror system, discovered a new jump point into Xi'an space. And while the previous discoveries had been into uninhabited systems, with tenuous Xi'an claims, with Sasung and Yamon. This was into Villa, a major Xi'an system with at least one developed planet at the time. Now it's two because it became a major military hub. Immediately, the UPE took control of the horror system, displacing the sparse inhabitants who moved there. Only Sante remained remo uh, refusing the order to retreat. And bear in mind, 2542, this is one year after the start of the First Tavaran War. Suddenly, in the space of two years, we found not only another hostile race that we're now at war with, but discovered a new route for the Xi'an to invade, or at best, a new jump point right into the key system that they might perceive as a threat and attack us over that. So something had to be done. And so, the Perry Line was born. Older lore credits the creation to a high naval commander, Gianna Perry, but the more up-to-date Galactopedia states that it was a Navy General Armistead Perry who was responsible for its creation. It was proposed to the tribunal that all who wielded UPE that all Xi'an connected systems be placed under Navy control, and under after much deliberation, the UPE leaders agreed that the uninhabited systems along the human Xi'an border would become militarized no man's lands. Horus, which had been named for Marisanto's ship, established the pattern for naming such systems as Horus had been the Egyptian god of war. So following that precedent, the Sun became Pallas, one of the names of the Greek goddess Athena, and the Yumon system became Hadur from Hungarian mythology. Later, that same year, in 2542, in the Odara proto-system that Kosoka discovered, we spoke out earlier, a Xi'an scout was discovered by GCA surveyors and immediately became the fourth periline system 
uh, renamed Gerzil after a Berber deity. It, it too linked into Rilla. So naturally, the corporations who had uh, invested in those systems were upset and began to sue the UPE, but those were sort of put to stop to later when four years Four years later, Ivor Messer overthrew the UPE tribunal, established the UEE, and you can't sue the Imperator, unfortunately. So four more systems would uh, eventually join the Perry line for a total of eight. We, there's one where we don't know the exact dates on, which is the system now known as Kukia, uh, which was Indra to the UEE from uh, Hindu mythology. Um, and that's also one of the two Perry line uh, systems which don't actually connect into UEE space. Um, so... The Oya system was named for the uh, Yoruban Orisha of wind, storms, death, and rebirth. And that was discovered by um, a Navy Lieutenant uh, Eli Price in 2587. He was pursuing some outlaws through a previously unknown jump point in Castra. And that came through into the um, Xi'an Nature Reserve system of Yalus, which would, so um, that would subsequently draw that new system into the Periline. The seventh system uh, bore the odd notable feature of being the only Paraline system with uh, no connection to Xi'an space at all. Um, Adia Firmino and Oisha Swen, two small-time smugglers out of Levski, had discovered an unremarkable system linked to the unclaimed Nick system, where Levski is. Notable only for, really for the very public dispute they had over the discovery rights. Uh, so the advocacy were issuing warrants for these two people while they're duking out in the press over who discovered this. Uh, but the UE didn't find the system that interesting. It was just a backwater off a backwater that they weren't in claiming. But then uh, later that, uh, like a couple of years later, a jump from this this newly discovered system to to the Periline system of Oya were discovered. So they they then took this um, this empty system, uh, which was named Towhill, uh, after a Mayan deity, and it became sort of a support system that was uh, adjacent to the Periline in at that point in time. And then the final system, Virtus, was named from, uh, which was named from uh, Roman mythology, that was discovered through a jump point from Towhill. That system was already known to the Xi'an as Lawo, and this discovery actually made the UEE readdress their um, deployment, and they pulled it back to Castra and Oya because they feared becoming overextended in systems that had uh, connections to non-UEE space, like with Nix. So Virtus was actually a Periline system in essentially name only. It was believed that because it had a big red giant in the middle, it would not really be a viable route for invasion. And any such fleet would have to come through Towhill anyway, and they were at least monitoring enough to see fleets. But the relatively lax security in these two systems would prove important during the Cold War, as you'll see. And so the Periline was built system by system, brick by brick, a bulwark against invasion, but also a barrier against mutual understanding. And a classic Periline system would feature the two navies facing off over this expanse with minefields, listening points, and military maneuvers designed to demonstrate your strength but not provoke an actual response. Hmm. And it was over or under this wall that the Cold War would be fought with sniping and subterfuge. There we go. Um, I I was just wondering because because like some of this information just literally just came out. That you're talking about and i'm looking over it like right now because i'm i was like oh yeah, yeah a lot of the stuff is stuff that was there kind of before but um i actually did a video on towhill and it's interesting how towhill exists because like no one cares about towhill and it's one of those systems that because no one cares about it it becomes one of the most important systems in modern exactly. ue history um 
And uh, the cool part about it is, is that because of that whole system, because it was so connected to the Nix system, they didn't want to monitor it because they'd have to go through Nix and no one, they didn't, they already didn't have any presence in Nix. So while they had some weak monitoring equipment, it wasn't good enough. So smugglers were just rife through Toho. Mm -hmm. It was literally a smuggler's paradise. And it was like later in the empire that like wealthy, well-to-do like Meserites would buy up like buildings on Toehill in uh, I think Toehill three on these floating flower beds and would literally be rubbing elbows with like smugglers uh, because it was like just beautiful sunset. And so it's like, like this Senator is eating dinner with like the, one of the worst pirate captains in the entirety of the UEE, just cause they happened to both be on Toehill kind of thing. It's this weird kind of yeah. melting pot location. So yeah. And, and when you consider like Toehill's position to Nix, and Nix has got jump points galore, yeah, it really does become that that route where if you're you're trying to smuggle things in, you go Toehill, Nix, and then everywhere. Yeah, um, and so it 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 really is that kind of area where no one cares about it, and yet it is so important to so many aspects of, of yeah. Star Citizen law. Uh, the piracy, the Cold War, the you name it, it's it's there, isn't it? It's mm. it's a huge diplomatic location too, uh, which mm. we'll talk about not this episode, but in the next episode, uh, in dealing with the end of the Cold War. So, um, but yeah, let's with that with that said, let's move on to the next part the the actual fighting over um, the the quote unquote fighting the the the, the Cold War fighting uh, that went on in this this time period with Al. Go take it away, Al. And so uh, this uh, paper is entitled War by Other Means. And as it goes on, I, I think you'll see the, the, uh, the different approaches to, to the Cold War or the way conflict was envisaged. And to say the relations between humanity and the Xeon Empire have been cold, if not frozen during the first three centuries following first contact, uh, would be an understatement. Uh, it, and that is clearly seen in various skirmishes along the Perry line. Uh, in this study, we're going to examine three such encounters, which uh, are often referenced by undergraduate students of Huxer relations. But I feel most students fail to fully understand the conflict because they focus on two of the main instances, uh, which do not really fit the Xeon preference for subtlety and manipulation. And I think that is really a key aspect when we're thinking about um, the way in which the Xeon approached the Cold War and the way uh, humanity and the Mezes approached the Cold War. The first reference study is often uh, often cited as the standoff at Haddor. In the year 2550, shortly after the First Tavaran War, Ivan Meza um, was keen to establish a strong perimeter and had ordered the deployment of an experimental long-range scanner, the TKL-2900, 20, uh, within the Perry system at Haddor, uh, near the Baker jump point. However, the ship suddenly exploded, um, and the first responding UAE naval vessel um, to the scene found several Zeon ships already scanning the debris. And it was only after that ship had fired warning shots across the bowels of the Xeon ships that they, they withdrew. They'd tried flying by, they'd tried sending warning messages and other things, and the Xeon just ignored them. And it was only when they, they fired those shots that they went, oh, yeah, they're serious, we better go. 
Um, and, and this led to the build-up of both sides of starting to send ships to to monitor the situation. And of note, with with the standoff it had over S3 points first, the Zen were not persuaded from their scanning of a wreck until those shots were fired across their bow. Second, the Zeon build-up uh, was the cause for concern as Admiral uh, Hershey, I'm, I'm going to call him Admiral Hershey Bar, Hershey Bar because he sounds like a chocolate bar, bar <laughs> um, ha had ordered every ship in his fleet to the Baker system, uh, still in Baker, to join him because he knew his fleet would soon be outnumbered by the, by the Zeon. As a result, he also ordered the Nautilus to lay a minefield. Now, at this point, the Nautilus was um, still secret, still hadn't been been put out. And he was hoping that it would be able to lay its minefield and get out of there, get some more mines and come back and do all of that before the Zeon arrived. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Uh, the Zeon did arrive and all accounts, all eyewitness reports from the time state that a massive Zeon fleet arrived. Um, if we were going to a shooting war, this was one of those situations that said, we are going to get our butts handed to us on a silver platter. Um, the third is once Admiral Hershey's fleet had recovered the flight recorders and withdrew to the Baker system, the Xeon did their own scans of the wreckage and also left the area. And they made no effort to stop the UE from uh, withdrawing. And that's key because it really shows the Xeon way of fighting war. If they need to, they will go to a shooting wall, but they'll, they'll prefer to uh, to use other means. So true to their nature and preference to subtle manipulation, we see them avoid that shooting wall. And it's significant because in that situation, they clearly had uh, a superior force in, in numbers and um, they also aimed not to be outright aggressors. And, when you look at the physiology and the society of Zeon culture, that's one of the things you do see uh, stands out. They, in none of their conflicts, they've been the, um, been the recognized attacker or aggressive. They've always seemed to be the responding to, um, at least with physical force. I think they might move forward using politics and other means uh, first, but certainly not physical force. The second incident that students often cite um is this um happened in 2617 in their kappa system near the newly discovered horus kappa jump point uh this encounter is significant for two reasons first it involved the discovery of a new jump point second it demonstrated the zeon resolve um, and threat to the uee when lieutenants ahmed hora and carl dyson discovered the horus jump point jump point they made the joint jump point, little knowing it was into a full-blown Xeon uh, system. They were neutralized by an EMP and, and, and captured. And after being interrogated for three days and having their ships stripped and examined, they were escorted back to the jump point with a warning. And that warning was any further UEU vessels would be attacked on site. So while the Xeon may have preferred that uh, subtlety and manipulation. They were also quite willing, if need be, to say, draw a line in the sand and say, thus far, no further. 
the third incident, which has really only recently been declassified, uh, has only been referenced by a few, most notably by Terrell Parker. And while the dates of this incident are still currently redacted, I feel it demonstrates more than the Kaffir kerfuffle, as I've called it, or the standoff at Haddo, uh, the preferred way of waging war that the Zeon have. While the date is redacted, I believe the incident occurs near the end of the Mezan regime, uh, mainly because Terrell Parker refers to the incident as the death knell for Aegis as a shipbuilding industry. But it's only after the fall of the Meza that Aegis fortunes uh, decline as military uh, contracts for that company dry up uh, due to its strong links with the Mezas. And that forced the company to reinvent itself in terms of its marketing. This so-called death knell for Aegis occurs because they were seeking to actually serve and actually help humanity by developing a ship that would enable naval personnel who had been stationed on the Perry Line their whole career to be actually be stationed elsewhere. They developed an AI-piloted Overlord bomber. The evidence indicates that the bomber had succeeded in all its trials, so much so that the Navy deployed a prototype bomber wing along the Perry Line at Horace, and the ships went rogue. Now, it's interesting because what happens is the AI determined their comm systems had been compromised to ensure that uh, there was no incident resulting in a hot war, uh, the UAE hunted down and destroyed uh, the ships of that bomber wing. But here's where I, I start to wonder. Did the AI go wrong or were their systems actually compromised? And the idea that their communication systems were compromised by Xeon, um, hacking or Xeon uh, listening uh, is conceivable when you consider the way they prefer to fight war and also the simple fact that until they were on the, the Perry line those ships have been working perfectly and so it seems to work with with both with both ideas and it seems very convenient that the AI went rogue at that particular time. Furthermore Analysts of, of um, the fall of the Mezes do agree that the fall of the Mezes were orchestrated by the Xeon manipulation. And I think this knowledge reinforces a hypothesis previously discussed here that the Xeon funded and possibly encouraged uh, the Tavaran, uh, which led to the second phase of the Tavaran War. Now, I'm, I'm sure my colleagues may agree or disagree with me on this point. Um, but we can certainly reference the harboring of political opponents to the Mezes until such a time as they could return and lead revolt. Um, and that, that seems to apply to any of the, the, the conflicts. But why the Zeon prefer to fight war is by other means. They prefer rather than shooting to uh, encourage xenophiles or um, others. And this gives the rise of uh, xenophiles in our Senate and also the rise of Leilani Addison, uh, whose own love affair with all things Zeon. And I suspect that she was knowingly or unknowingly bankrolled by the Zeon Imperial Court. Um, we should uh, know um, how much, or we should ask how much we are moving towards being a, a Zeon client state, or whether we are just being uh, more friendly. 
Bazian appear to glitter and shine as paradigms of virtue and peaceful intent. But for me, the old adage that all that is gold does not glitter also seems true of our Zion neighbours. So there you go, gentlemen. I disagree. <laughs> oh, I thought you would. I would. Yeah. I, I, so I, I, I get the concept, but it, it strikes me as a little bit too Zeno threat. You know what I mean? A little, a little too on the, on the tinfoil hat kind of conspiracy. Um, I, it's, it's important to note with the, with the Xi'an that the Xi'an are a, a people who are quite literally distrustful of themselves, let alone everybody else. They have a history of constant warfare that nearly wiped them out as a species. And it seems like one of the few species that they met that could best them or uh, equal them nearly killed them. And they, or, or they scares the ever living hell out of them, uh, with the, with the Karthak. So it reminds me of, it reminds me of the, the I don't know, just sets you up, but the way in which I imagine they see humans is a bit like the way the, the Vulcans see humans in, in Star Trek. Star Trek. That we remind them too much of themselves and it scares the crap out of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you also got to remember that, like, it seems like, at least according to the current lore, that the contact with humans is directly a result of the, of the Kirthok Wars, of the Spirit Wars. Because after the Spirit Wars essentially turn with House Cray coming to power, they ban all expansion towards um, Kirthok space and start moving the opposite direction, which heads them right into human space. So if you're a species that are already kind of distrustful of everything and you run smack dab into another species, which is maybe slightly technologically behind you, but it's rapidly catching up to you, you might be a little bit more willing to employ clandestine measures. Um, I feel, but I feel like it's, it was less of a, I feel less of the Jian puppeteering and more of a, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And if we doing, if, if we help these people out, then we won't have a dangerous rogue state on our borders. So instead of, um, yeah, the friend of my enemy is my enemy, my, the friend of my, my, the friend of my friend, you know, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah whatever. The friend of my enemy is my friend. I, I think, well, I, I don't remember what I said, but yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think that we as humans, we don't like being made to do a good thing. As in, mm. like, we like even if it's a good idea, if someone's telling us to do it, we now we don't want to do it. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I th yeah, there is great textual stuff to sh say that the Xi'an helped overthrow the Messers because it benefited them, but it also benefited humanity because the Messers were bad. And you know, just I, I think that there's a sense that if we can find Xi'an fingerprints on something, then therefore it's now a bad thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is. And I think that also there's something that in your talk and also my talk that shows just how dedicated they were to not going to war with us. Mm. That K the Kafir incident, that system contains Raipwang, which is literally their Vatican city. And suddenly the UE military just stumbles in and is like, oh, crap. And yep. they give us a quick pat down three days. That's nothing to them. And so it goes anyway. So don't come back. And with the establishment of the Perry line, there's three systems that they found first and we rock up and say, right, this is part of the Perry line. Now you better back off out of systems they found mm. first. And they just go, okay, easy backing up, backing up. 
and they kind of acquiesce to to and, avoid and, war every step. And you see that with you see that with the, the um the Horus the standoff at Horus as well. Their, their mm -hmm. fleet that turns up, everything seems to say massive fleet, not just big fleet, not just a fleet that will equal us, but a fleet that the admiral calls every ship in his fleet from Baker to Horus because he knows I'm going to be outnumbered soon. Mm -hmm. And when the fleet arrives, it's a massive Zeon fleet. It's not, it's not a fleet that isn't going to cause us grief. It's like a fleet that's going to wipe the floor with, with Admiral Hershey Bar. And um, it, it, it reminds I mean, me of, I'll just quickly, it reminds me of how like there is the few humans who have been able to test Zeon spacecraft. Um, I remember exactly the, the planet where this is. But it ends up being like the place where they were sent to test was a military planet. It was one of the Xi'an's military training facilities. And um, the Xi'an invited humans over there because they wanted to test pilot humans being able to fly, fly Xi'an ships for the, you know, eventually Huxa for, for those sorts of things. And of course, the pilots were heavily influenced by the military intelligence who were trained ahead of time. They were trained ahead of time to be like, you toss everything you see. And the Xi'an kind of knew this, so they just kind of had a massive fleet there the entire time those humans were there, so that it was nothing but a fleet. That seems more along the lines of the Xi'an style of, like, we don't want to ever show you our full hand because we don't trust you. It's kind of like they live next door to an angry gorilla with a shotgun who is, who is, who's known to just swill, swing it around and start shooting at things that aren't them. So yeah, if an angry gorilla with a shotgun busts down your front door, you may back up a few steps and just be like, all right, cool, I'm going to go into this door rather than, mm -hmm. you, you may be more intelligent and can kill an angry gorilla with a shotgun, but do you want to fight an angry gorilla with a shotgun? So, But it also, it also does more than that because it, it shows the UEE and those pilots go back and say, oh yeah, the massive bloody fleet guarding that, yeah. <laughs> guarding, guarding that planet. You know, yeah, we got to fly some of their ships, but They've got lots of ships there. They, they outnumber us. They've got big ships. Um, yeah. And start saying, hey, you go to war with us. You, you start a shooting war with us, and we're going to give one you last a, thing a slacken. One last thing that I think there isn't there isn't any textual support for is, is Xi'an involvement in the second Tavaran war, though. I don't yeah. think that there's anything really to say that they knew about the the holdout Tavaran. It, 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 we're talking about the exact opposite side of the empire to them and we also get the sense with the discoveries we make that those are new systems to them as well is... where our fringes are coming up so i i don't buy the involvement in in Korathal. i mean obviously they would probably be making hay while the sun's shining otherwise with the ue and and distracted but i don't, there is, I don't buy it there is one. a reference that they uh after the first of our and more Tavaran, uh, refugees went into Xi'an and Banu space. Hmm. Um, but it doesn't appear that Karathal appeared from Banu space. We, we don't know. We don't know anything UAE. about him. And yeah. um, and I know we've talked um, previously that uh, the other Tavaran systems of their empire just became the remainder of their empire. And that seems to be likely where Karathal yeah. came from. And likely they had uh, secret uh, military bases or had been building up their military quietly and slowly in the background yeah but if you've got the cold war building up i could see uh and if we know from the way in which the tavara uh the Zian used the underground railway to 
bring dissidents in and out of the empire or out of the UAE. I can also see them using that same method in that early period of Cold War as when things were probably at their, their hottest to, to actually assist, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, that wouldn't have existed. That, way. that wouldn't have existed at that point because we hadn't discovered those systems that um, at that point. And yeah, I I think that we'll we'll learn a lot more about the Tavarin when we get like <clears throat> they're they're the least fleshed out really out of yeah. the out of all the races. Even if the Vandal, you know, we don't know their fleshed out bits. You know, Tavarin are the ones that we're going to hear about. I think a lot over the next couple of years, and it should hopefully add some clarity to these these questions. And, and certainly, I think the Tavarin are one of those races that we do want to learn more about because they're the one race that is fully integrated within the UAE. And so, if anything, that's the one race we would know, or as as settle as citizens of the UAE, we should know more about. And yet, we know more about the Zian and the Banu than we know about the, the citizens of their empire. I, I think that has more to do with the with just the de development because as you say you're yeah, starting to storylines. So um yeah, I'm I'm trying to find this last one. I'm I'm trying to blank on it, so I'll probably just kind of skip it for now. But uh there's something it, that I in one of the one of the um jump points I was like, aha, I remember this, and then I, I just blanked my brain, my mind. I, I forgot what it was now, but um for my section. But uh, we'll move on to the last section. We talked about the parry line, we talked about the, the military conflicts around the parry line. I'm gonna discuss some of the the war at home situation the first mention of not so good relations between the mezzers and their own people starts around the death of of mezzer the first the first celebrations that were widespread of uh day of the vara comes from the year after Ivor Mezzer I died. And it was ostensibly a way of poking fun at and politically protesting the Mezzer regime. It seems that since the first Tavarin War and, the, uh, and before the second Tavarin War, there were already large numbers, obviously people who didn't like the idea of the UEE. And the hotbed of this activity centered around Terra. And this has a lot to do with Terra's proximity to the Xi'an Empire. Terra being a up and coming system, expanding and exploding in trade and having such massive numbers of, of jump points in its own system, allowing for easy travel to just about anywhere in the Eastern Empire, uh, was already starting to show its disdain for having to deal with Earth. And it seems that early on, Terran radicals, especially Terran uh, artists and uh, uh, intellectuals and politicians, seem to blame the Mezers for the war pretty early on. They seem to think that the Mezers were the reason why a lot of these um, conflicts that didn't need to happen. They were seeing an opportunity for, for trade and profit that the, was being restricted by the Mezzer's xenophobia. Um, and as I said, October 27th, 2953, um, the members of Terra's counterculture um, picked up this superstition of the Day of the Vara, which was essentially you would dress as a, the, the dead crew members of the Vara to ward off evil spirits. 
So, but instead of dressing as dead members of the of the ship, the Vara, which disappeared in the uh, the uh, Hades system, they dressed up. All of the counterculture members dressed up as Emperor Ivar Mezer the First, who had died a year before, uh, as a way of warding off evil. So this is just kind of shows you that fairly early on, almost the year after Ivar Mezer's death, there are open disdain for the for for the Mezers and for this Cold War. But this would build up over and over and over again, and a split began to form between the West and East, Western and Eastern empires. The Western empires, much more loyal to, to the imperators, where the Eastern empires was being more and more drawn towards the, uh, towards Terra, being the kind of center of culture and counterculture against the UEE. Now. This would come to a, at least early head, in 2638. Specifically, March the 12th, 2638. When a particular leader of the, of the Tavaran, or the Tavaran, of the, of the Terran uh, government, the Terran governor, Asan Kiernan unveiled a proposal, a vote for Terra to leave the UEE. This is the first attempt by any system that we know of to leave the UEE through diplomatic means. And it was a media frenzy. Specifically in this discussion, it was mentioned that the Xi'an and the Banu are our neighbors, we, uh, where we see them every day. We know that they're not our enemy. They're people just like us. Their culture may be different. Their motivations may be different, but they're just trying to live and live safely. The Imperator is happy to keep them at a distance, though, through the sights of weapons. But I don't believe we can, can continue on this path. If you live anticipating a war, sooner or later, you will have one. That's his words. Um, this sparks off a media frenzy of, of terror trying to leave the UEE. The Imperator at the time, who was Livia Messer, the, um, um, the second Messer, um, or the Livia Messer III, who is the daughter of the second Messer, uh, was very quiet, but... Suddenly, this motion for separation failed. It failed spectacularly after media blitzes of how bad it was. And around the same time, or should I say after this, this had happened, um, the governor suddenly was found to have been, uh, have a, had a raging drug addiction. And, and, and corruption and every single thing that you can imagine um, were, were thrown at the governor. Um, while, the, while the governor, Kiernan himself, was saying that the Mezzers had tampered the election, that they had, they had been doing uh, all sorts of nasty things, which we know now uh, the advocacy was very much part of at the time. Um, and suddenly 
uh, about uh, two years later in 2638, he disappears. Sam Kiernan disappears entirely. Nowhere to be seen. Um, and of course, the heavily is suspected that the that the Imperator was involved. Livia and her future, um, the other Mezzers began uh, after Livia began campaigns of black bagging and dragging civilians into shadow prisons, specifically on Charon Three, where a major prison was built to house political prisoners. So it became a back and forth pretty quickly in the UEE, specifically around Terra, where many very visible members of UEE society could speak out, but only so much. Uh, this all changed dramatically, uh, after, or just say after the discovery of the Toehill system. The, as we've kind of illustrated how Toehill eventually found itself as part of the Perry line, with connections to the Xi'an, even though it had never really been taken seriously. In Toehill, shortly after the discovery, shortly discovered that, that they was connected to the Xi'an Empire, um, Xi'an and um, UEE, or Xi'an and human smugglers, began to meet and exchange goods around Toehill. This meeting and exchanging of goods continued to also... Um, pass messages back and forth. And soon, as uh, many members of the uh, growing resistance against the, the Mezzers um, would find out uh, they needed to escape, soon people began to be smuggled from the UEE to Xi'an space, where the Xi'an would offer protection against the Mezzers black bagging, disappearing into political prisoners, or just assassinations. And this process was funnily started in Bremen. Today, Bremen is known for big bennies and for guns. But back towards the end of its, of its heyday after the Second Tavarn War in 2792, Bremen became the centerpiece of actual resistance. If Terra was the figurehead, then Bremen was the teeth. Bremen, as it was slipping into more obscurity, as its profits were dwindling for, from many of its crops, uh, many members of Bremen society, including government, members of government, and the vaunted Bremen Defense Force, the best militia in the UEE, secretly were siding with anti-measure radicals, helping to sh uh, smuggle De, uh, high members of society out of the UEE for their protection, including one Auguste Dunlow, the future founder of Crusader Industries. This movement of people was not just a movement of people. It was a movement of people, of ideas, of goods, and soon this Bremen, uh, it was exactly what it's called, the Bremen uh, Beltway, which would take people from Bremen to Nix to Toehill to uh, Wirtus. Uh, I, I, I can't pronounce the, <laughs> the Xi'an names. Uh, Lau. I'm, I'm messing that right up. 
I'm waiting for jail to correct me. Lawo. 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 And ending up in, I'm just going to say the UEE, the UEE version of it, uh, uh, Elias, was a pathway to freedom. It was um, a established pathway which would eventually lead to the overthrow of the of the of the Mezers. but it's quite clear uh from from very early on in the in the Xi'an Cold War that the home front was lost almost instantly yeah the new uh, the new article that got published today really put a bit of a fox amongst the <laughs> pigeons with us um yeah great we got to we got to rewrite everything it's go through all everything. this yes um i think the the Bremen Beltway story is absolutely fantastic like bit of addition to all of this I think a lot of those people would have probably ended up in this. There's this um, city called Carilla on the planet mm -hmm. Xi, which is in the Rilla system, and that appears to be where, like, it's it's like the London of the um, a lot a lot of the people who had to leave Russia um, because of persecution and then came back and did the uh, communist revolution. They were in London, and Carilla was very much like the London of the Messers, in that it yeah. was it was where all their dissidents had ended up and. Um, it sounds like a really cool place. I wonder if in the in the library in that city there'll be a, a an encyclopedia or it's got the scriblings of um, August Dunlow, kind of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> August Dunlow. <laughs> it's the Casablanca of of its time, you should say, like the where where yes, yeah. A good, a good, um, good, good there's a note. There's a note about it where the, the Xi'an don't care about human on human crimes in in there to this day so you still get some like bounty hunters going and snatching people up who who are trying to use it to hide mm. nice yeah but but of note in the in the in, in the information is also as as the cold war or as the measures are losing power and and after the you know the the incidents with anthony tanaka really kick off that they reverse that um that beltway don't know right? that that rather than people coming going into Xeon space, it's yeah. all the distance are now being ferried back. Yes. Uh, um, and, by and then going from, you know, Tohul to Nix and then from Nix to everywhere. Yeah. Um, well, it's not just Nix. So um, Bremen. They're going back to Bremen. Because Bremen, <laughs> like, it, it's almost like, it's even recently said, it's like, it's only really recently released, like in the last two decades, that really explained how deep Bremen was in the resistance. They were key like we have records mm. from government officials, like a lot of the revolution was headquartered from Bremen. We talk about how the um, the Tide, uh, this this uh, terrorist organization, this re re freedom fighting organization that existed, um, kind of took was able to piggyback on military pathways, military communications to be able to keep the the lines open. Um, and it's you know it's not specifically said, but I wouldn't be surprised if the headquarters of the tide was bremen it's it's that because because like you said they they mentioned there are government officials which may just mention maybe maybe bremen government but it could be even the ue government because we know that senators were involved in the revolution um especially when um which i didn't mention the um the Acre treaty was signed there i didn't know where where we we're going to talk about i figured that would be a good kind of next episode to talk about the the mm. the the um the cray the uh, yeah that the 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 detente as it will as it were mm. um the towards the end but like 
we know that those those people were involved in that. So we know that like Bremen is Bremen is one of those systems that I'm I'm really interested in because it is very very much the 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 crossroads of humanity in terms of like whatever's going on in human space, Bremen is involved in it. In just about every single conflict or every single event, Bremen plays a key role in it. From the first Tavarn War being the breadbasket of the QEE to the fall of the Mezers, uh, to even today. Uh, and you'll I, find that. Go on, Joe. I was going to say, and I think an interesting thing about Bremen is that it maintains a really significant militia in the Bremen Defense Force. Mm. And that they, that large parts of them were involved in allowing this Bremen Beltway to go away, while kind of keeping the the elements who weren't in favour of it away from these these smugglers. And I think that's interesting that there's there's this sort of implicit thing that if it had ever become a civil war, the BDF would probably have been like a core of of like a, an armed rebellion. Yeah. Uh, for, like I think that's implicit in that. They probably were too. We just don't know a lot about their evolution. Like they may have been the core of the of the tides military forces that would now, that would eventually it. So. Uh, to, to pick up a, a point you made um, about my very very Xeno threat uh, theme, <laughs> which I wasn't actually trying to do a Xeno threat theme, but it does kind of have that that threat of uh, uh, certainly um, foreign influence. Um, is how much of the Xeno threat force are actually Meserites. That's good. Refreshing. Now, I, I personally think significant numbers of them are the Meserite force, the, the, the navy that really didn't want um, the fall to happen have kind of gone off and done their own thing and almost, if it's in a sense, been, the, been like a Devar and find a little place and build up their own forces and get other like-minded individuals and then they're now trying to uh, influence by force. Uh, the way, and I think Possibly. they're going to fail because, well, oh yeah, they're just, they're just not in the they're, they're crazies. <laughs> they're the 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 thing that is interesting is is like a lot of your the, the, your kind of your pitch about the xenothread stuff. It actually sounds a lot like centralist um, dis, uh, discussions, like how the centralists speak in and you look look at the uh, political politics of the um, the lower posts. Um, because that's very much a the cornerstone. Now, yeah. yeah, it's very much a cornerstone of the centralist party. And you can see it through a lot of the Congress Now posts where it's like, do not trust the alien. Not necessarily the alien mm. is bad, but distrust the alien because the alien always has an alternative or motive. Be them Tavarin, be they um, Jian, be they Banu, do not trust aliens. Trust humans because we understand who humans are. We don't know who, ali who aliens are. And because we don't know them well enough, we shouldn't let them in. This kind of underlining xenophobia which you know in the extreme ends you have xeno threat and at the more moderate ends you have you know the current senators from the vega system so and well, the... yeah well one of the vega system was in favor of it the one from yeah. um aramis and then one was uh, sorry what we're referring to here is is the nomination of a xian person as the ambassador to the xian from the uee and it was actually uh, seconded by the the senator from Aramis in the Vega system, and then opposed yeah. by the senator from Celine, yeah, mm. who are both centralists as well. Yes, uh, which always surprised me, but yeah, yeah. At, but I think that it makes sense. Like, if you're looking at an ambassador to uh, to, you know, do you take someone who is a national of that country, of that nation, a national of that 
that nation, who's got links to that nation, who's got family living in that nation, to be your representative representing your interests. It, I think, yeah, you want that Tavaran on that counts on that as your part of your ambassador team, but you also need humans on that team. Yeah, I mean, because he, you need he, people who actually yeah. understand yeah. where humans are coming from. You need someone who understands where the Tavaran are coming from on your team, but you also need someone who represents you and where people are coming from. And I, He'd previously been an advisor to the past mm. ambassador, and that's a great role for him. I'm, I'm also of this opinion that he wasn't a great candidate. And I think actually speaks to what you were talking about, about Leilani Addison's connections to the Xi'an, mm, yeah. in that this is a wealthy businessman from her home city where she ran the campaign out of that city. Then Who also graduated from the same college. Graduated from the same yeah, college. And it, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I think, I think that's a reference to American practices of you give your mm. mates the cushy ambassadorships. Yep. And then, yeah, yeah so uh, that's it, something that most countries don't do. Yeah. I think it's often seen, it's often said, you know, I think in, in Australia that the same idea, you know, you, you give someone a cushy ambassadorship either to get rid of them <laughs> or because as a reward, yeah. depending on where you send them. Um, in America, you just buy them. You just give enough money yeah. to the campaign and you get to be ambassador to France and live in Paris yeah. for a bit. So. Yeah. Um, just which is sad because okay. we actually do have people who spend their whole lives working in the, in the, in the service, in the foreign service to like as ambassador assistants and stuff like that. It's a completely different discussion though. I think that might actually be a good discussion, kind of a, an end point that that whole post is a good, it would be a good end point for the thawing and the, the current state of the Xi'an human relations, yeah. you know, um, to be continued. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, now, to be continued. Now I, I know and I'm, I've been playing devil's advocate a little bit with the, with the very Xi'ani, <laughs> very anti-alien threads and, and the, um, um, hot stirring mm -hmm. but i think it you can actually draw those types of conclusions from the breadcrumbs that get dropped and that's the beauty of star citizen law there's there's so many breadcrumbs out there that cig basically said yeah we've got the, we've got the law set down set in stone here but you've got to go find the actual truth here are the breadcrumbs here are the possibilities mm -hmm. you've got when you go out there into this you can find those other other bits and pieces that are going to draw those links and and join the dots and that's what makes certainly from my perspective the the law of star citizens so deep and so juicy and so great um i don't know whether we'll paul and jail find that but that for me is is uh the, the joy it's how historians do their work it, we we you know we we look at the pieces of the puzzle and try to put them together and often it's incomplete but it's that's the fun <laughs> we, yeah. we like doing that um so i like it but i also understand why some people are frustrated by it because it's like some people just give me the wiki i just need the wiki so i know what happened you know yeah. <laughs> so all right well thank you so much jail and al for joining us um and we will be kind of moving right along to uh um I'm trying to blink on us to, to the next episode, which will be probably part two of our Xi'an Cold War um, episode. Uh, make sure that you're following all these wonderful, these, both these wonderful folks on their social medias and make sure you're subscribed to us on YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, if you're listening to this on our on podcast, make sure to subscribe to us on all of the podcasts. I think we're on Spotify. We're on Apple uh, podcasts. I think we're on Google podcasts. So wherever you're listening to this, please do stick around. We'll be back next month. Okay. Okay.